It's the 9th of April, 2017, and this is episode 326 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Well, this has been a busy couple of weeks in the scaling debate in Bitcoin as a flurry of proposals have been launched by different parties attempting to either find compromise, common ground, or diffuse the situation or position their own particular type of solution. It's been interesting. Um, Two proposals over the last 10 days, maybe, that came not out of Bitcoin Core, but out of other organizations. The first one, proposal by Sergio Lerner, who is core contributor, as well as the uh, chief scientist, I believe, at Rootstock. He proposed a new compromise proposal, if you want to call it that, which is a sequenced activation of SegWit, followed by a 2 megabyte baseline hard fork, taking us to an 8 megabyte block by the end of the year, effectively in a two-step dance that ensures that both the second proponents and the hard fork proponents get what they want at the end of it. In a somewhat predictable manner, it was hated by both sides and uh, generated a whole stream of controversy. Then followed that a few days later, we saw another proposal called Extended Blocks, which is a twist on a previous proposal by Johnson Lau from 2014, that basically creates a larger block by segregating transactions as a whole into an extended block. And this proposal came from Chris Jeffries, JJ from Purse.io, author of Bcoin, as well as Joseph Poon and a couple of other contributors, uh, Joseph Poon of Lightning Network. And this was proposed on Tuesday and promptly caused another eruption in the uh, controversy and debate and quite a bit of negative response from many, many different parts of the community. And the block wars are on again. And finally, it all ends with a bombshell of an announcement yesterday by Greg Maxwell implicating ASIC boost, a covert version of ASIC boost in the entire scaling debate to bring us full circle. It's been a crazy week. So yeah, let's just find a couple of things first. Can we give a quick recap on what is SegWit? And just for a quick review for people who may not have been following or need a reminder, what actually is SegWit? And how does SegWit 2 megabyte integrate it into that proposed solution? SegWit uh, stands for segregated witness. And basically what it involves is removing the signatures from within transactions and putting them in a separate part of the transaction and also a separate part of the block. And this has two effects. The primary effect, which is the most important, is that it completely eliminates third-party transaction malleability. So it's no longer possible to malleate transactions, a transaction's ID, the hash or fingerprint of a transaction is stable both before and after mining and cannot be changed by a third party because all of the parts that it fingerprints are signed and therefore can't be changed. The signatures, which were the part that got malleated, is now no longer part of that ID. And that's a really, really big deal. It opens the door for a whole bunch of smart contracts and capabilities. Beyond that, SegWit adds four or five additional features which have significant impact in the scaling debate, as well as fixing a few other 
long-standing problems in Bitcoin. It changes the semantics of the check signature operator to avoid a particular problem called quadratic hashing, whereby uh, some specially crafted transactions can cause a very large CPU load on the nodes trying to verify them, effectively a vector for denial of service, uh, which is one of the main things that's holding back the possibility of expanding blocks. It's considered by some that bigger blocks would massively amplify this particular denial of service vector. Then it also changes the way signatures are applied to input values by making sure that the transaction inputs also have a value associated with them, which makes it a lot easier for hardware wallets to sign transactions without having to trust the computer they're connected to and without having to stream a whole bunch of previous transactions for every transaction they sign. So big optimization for hardware wallets. And finally, and this is where it gets into the scaling debate, the signatures that are put into a, a separate part of the block get a discount, meaning that in the calculation of their size, they get a 75% discount, which would allow wallets to create SegWit transactions. And by creating transactions that use SegWit, expand the size of the block effectively to 4 meg. Effectively, you can probably fit about 2.1 meg of transactions into that. So it's a, at least a block doubling in the size effectively, as well as a fix for malleability. Okay, and just a little bit of history. There was another thing I think is important to mention about SegWit is that there was basically a meeting over a year ago at this point where year and a, year and a half now mm -hmm. year and a half ago in Hong Kong where it was the developer conference and basically everybody agreed that this yeah this is going to be implemented but it has not yet been implemented to date well actually what everyone agreed at the time was kind of a two-step process and the problem was that it wasn't everyone three or four developers from core certainly some of the most prolific developers but not all of the most prolific developers were at the hong kong agreement and they signed personally on this agreement that this would be done as a two-step first segwit would be ready and it was promised april of last year it didn't actually get finished until late in the summer and actually got added for activation signaling in November. And then the second part of this agreement was that that would lay the groundwork for presenting a proposal for hard fork to increase the underlying block size. And that was an agreement that some or many of the miners signed on to and some members of the core development team signed on for. But very quickly, some of the other core developers denounced it. And then in the end, there hasn't been a practical proposal for a hard fork, which leaves many of the miners feeling that the agreement was violated. And SegWit was also delayed quite a bit in the development. So now SegWit currently proposal under the uh, BIP9 signaling system, which means that it's, it's ready to be activated. It just needs 95% of the hashing power to signal for it, and then it becomes activated. However, now a big chunk of the hashing power is actively lobbying against SegWit, proposing other things like Bitcoin Unlimited as an alternative, and saying that, and I'm paraphrasing here, but SegWit won't be activated until or unless there's a hard fork attached to it. Okay, I think that's a great summary. 
of how we got to this point with SegWit. So what is SegWit 2 megabyte, the SegWit 2 megabyte proposal that just came out this past week? So Sergio Lerner proposed a different vote. So this is a separate part of the ballot, if you like, or a signaling mechanism that signals for a new proposal that he calls SegWit 2 meg. Um, more accurately, it should probably be called SegWit 8 meg because SegWit itself is an amplifier. It amplifies the capacity of the base block. So if you change the base block to 2 and SegWit provides a 4x amplification that effectively gives you 8 meg transactions, you could have up to theoretically 8 meg blocks. Not quite because of ser- several considerations. It's more than just 2. SegWit itself is 2. So anyway, the idea is this is a two-step process that kind of implements what was discussed in the Hong Kong agreement. If you, if you vote for this proposal, as soon as it activates with 95%, SegWit activates immediately. And then after, I think it was an eight-month delay, a hard fork happens that changes the base block size to 2 meg on top of the SegWit amplification of the size. So by signaling for this, the theory is that that way you can't have broken promises, at least not without changing the software and violating this proposal. Because once one activates, then the other will activate. Mm, So it ties SegWit together with the hard fork. Uh, Correct. Now, the objections to this are that 8 meg is way too much, will lead to mining centralization, give additional power to miners to push out the smaller competitors by mining very large blocks that are unaffordable to maintain. And it will also cause centralization of nodes because people will not be able to maintain nodes because of the bandwidth and storage costs that are imposed by such large blocks. Basically, the major objection is 8 meg is too big. And what we should do is do SegWit, get the 2 meg, relieve the pressure on the block size debate, and give us time to figure out what to do next and what other improvements can be used. Because there are a number of other potential improvements in the pipeline, including things like Schnorr signatures, which can give another maybe 25 to 50% optimization on transaction signatures and many other proposals in the pipeline. So again, the the, the the hard fork is not a popular option among a big chunk of the core developers because of perceived risks and that it might split the community uh, with unupgraded nodes getting kicked off of consensus. Yeah, I was going to ask, I mean, a hard fork is a huge deal. There have been people objecting to that all along to any solution that requires a hard fork to implement. So I understand that there there is also some pushback on this most recent one. So the risks from hard fork are basically what users creating two bitcoins. Well, creating two chains is the worst case scenario if you have a hard fork that's not supported by a vast majority. And part of Sergio's proposal was by having a 95% threshold on step one, it's an implicit very high threshold on step two. So the idea is to avoid creating two sort of competing change that that each have about 50% support. Yes, although it's important to note that there are certain parts of the community that will hold fast against any increase in the base block size and will use whatever funds and nodes and technology they can to continue running a minority chain. At this point, I think, in Bitcoin's development, the minority chain will not die easily. 
even if it's a small minority chain. Okay, so I have a couple of questions here. So we're saying that SegWit 2 megabyte increases the block size to 2 megs, but it has an effective increase to 8 megabytes. Right, it's the theoretical maximum, but effectively, um, you never reach that. And that would require that everything is based on SegWit transactions. Let's call it 5. Let's call it 5 is the realistic upper limit that we're actually going to see. So if we accept the assumption that that is too large for nodes to work with, how is this an optimization? How is segregated witness actually optimizing anything if the blocks are, they might, you know, on the Bitcoin blockchain effectively be two megabytes, but in reality, because of this uh, additional data, there's five megabyte blocks. How is that actually different from just increasing the block size? Well, it's not. And, and Sergio made this very clear in his proposal. He said, this is not a technically optimal proposal. This is a political compromise. And it doesn't give us the technically optimal proposal because the technically optimal proposal is politically untenable. Either one, either a hard fork, straight hard fork increase to 2 meg or segregated witness, which is still in the signaling phase and, and has achieved some progress, but not enough. Basically, that means that both of those proposals are in a political stalemate and are untenable. And so the hybrid of the two is a is a tiger with a duck's head and it's not ideal it's not technically elegant but it is a political compromise between the two sides and of course that receives the greatest amount of criticism which is if we start doing political compromise in a technical system like this then what's the point in continuing so Segregated witness has a 95% activation threshold, in large part because it requires a lot of consensus within the network, since it's a not actually a hard fork change that's forcing the network to pick between one path or the other. No, not really. Segregated witness itself is a soft fork that unupgraded nodes are free to ignore and continue to work without any changes. The reason it was put as a 95 activation threshold is because that was the default threshold used for signaling. And Core wanted to make sure that it had broad consensus, even though it's not a hard fork and it doesn't knock off anyone from consensus if they don't agree to do it. It's completely optional. It's not mandatory. It's opt-in. You know, I mean, I think to me, that's the one fact that puts to lie this entire conspiracy theory about block stream and core and running a dictatorship. Because if you're a dictatorship, you don't put things to a vote with a 95% threshold. There was no need to do that. Yet it is a 95% threshold, and now it seems unlikely it can ever be reached because anyone with 6% of the hashing power can basically hold an indefinite veto. So, but assuming for a second that it activates, the way that the soft fork works is that it will ignore all of the other nodes that if, if there's anybody who's not adopted this change after it's been activated, then all of the nodes that have adopted the change ignore all of the other participants on the network that haven't, right? Well, it's more the other way around. To non-upgraded nodes, the SegWit transactions are kind of invisible. They can't see them. They look like transactions with empty signatures. I see. Okay, gotcha. Thank you for clearing that up. And then my last question is just, why is a hard fork then preferable to parts of the community? What's the kind of argument in favor of a hard fork relative to doing something like this? Well, and this is where it gets to the last topic of today, which is ASIC boost. And it gets much more complicated from a political perspective. But the technical arguments are primarily that witness is fairly complex software. 
And it includes, in order to be done as a soft fork, it includes a bit of a kludgy implementation and how it's inserted into the Coinbase transaction. So you need all of the signatures to be mined as well, even though they're not of the block. And the way to do that is to build a separate Merkle tree and put the roots of that Merkle tree in the Coinbase transaction so that the miners commit to it. And that way you can't forge signatures. So you need to reinsert it back into the block somehow. And the soft fork way of doing that is to put it in the Coinbase. Now, some of the people who are opposed to this consider this one kludge too far. And a rather convoluted way of doing things that introduces technical debt. And why not simply do the obvious and easy thing to fix the scaling problem, which is a hard fork to 2 meg? Of course, the problem with that, I think, is that segregated witness isn't just a scaling solution. In fact, it isn't primarily a scaling solution. It's a malleability fix. And a hard fork to 2 meg does nothing for malleability. It does nothing for quadratic caching. And it amplifies the problems with both of those things by giving more space to play for a denial of service attack for quadratic caching. Sorry, what's quadratic caching? Quadratic hashing is due to the way that signatures are applied to transactions. You have to recalculate the hash for every input that's added. And the algorithm's big O notation, its, its scaling factor, is quadratic. As the number of inputs increases, the number of hashing operations increases as the square of that factor. And that means that if you create a one meg transaction with you know, 5,000 inputs, you can create transactions that take minutes to validate the signature on. In fact, such a transaction was created in a block in order to demonstrate the principle. If you increase the block size, what that means is you can now stuff more of these gigantic clogging transactions into the system and basically cause such a delay that you start stepping on the next block creation time, which means that either miners mine empty blocks or they risk mining a double spend because they haven't validated the signatures, right? So miners have to validate before they mine the next block. And if validating takes them minutes, that's a really big problem for mining. Getting a little clarity on uh, what you're saying there. I actually think I understand how SegWit works, and I want to see if I am correct. Uh, you said that the Merkle tree root gets put into the transaction, and the Merkle tree contains all of the signatures in it. So it's a hierarchical structure, right, that uh, has different kind of uh, keys tiered in it, or I guess in this case, it's signatures. So that sounds a lot like what we have done at Tokenly somewhat recently to make it so you can embed a bunch of extra data into transactions about tokens, because you can't fit it all on the blockchain natively. So instead, what we do is we take a fingerprint of the information and we put it in there and then have a separate data structure that the fingerprint or the hash uh, references back to. And it allows for the data you're referencing, in my case, you know, this extra token information, in this case, these uh, signatures to be tamper evident and secured by the blockchain. But they're not actually on the blockchain itself in the same way. Correct. So in the original implementation of Satoshi Nakamoto's Bitcoin, the way transactions are stored in a block 
is they have to be committed to, they have to be part of what you're mining. So they're summarized. And the way they're summarized is you take all of the transaction IDs and you put them in a structure, a data structure called a Merkle tree. And what the Merkle tree does is it takes the first two transactions, hashes them together. Then it takes the next two transaction, hashes those together. Then it takes the two hashes it produced and hashes them pairwise to create a parent. And you have this, effectively, it's a binary tree. So it's each node has a left and right child. And you hash from the bottom in pairs all the way up until you've got a root hash called the Merkle root. And that depends on all of the things at the bottom. But the um, the real amazing thing about Merkle trees is that if you have a thousand transactions, you can fit that in a nine level tree and you can prove that any transaction is in the tree by producing just nine hashes. And if you have you know a million transactions, you can fit it in a 17 or 16 layer tree and produce only 16 hashes to, to prove. So it's a very efficient algorithm because it allows you to do proofs of the order of log 2n. And that, that makes a huge difference. Now, if you take the, the signatures out of the transactions, you have to somehow have miners commit to the signatures. So the signatures are immutable too. And ideally, you'd have another Merkle tree just for signatures and put its root in the block header. But we don't want to change the block header because that's a hard fork. So instead, they take all of the signatures, put them in their own Merkle tree, separate from the transaction Merkle tree. So one is called the transaction Merkle tree. The other one's called the witness Merkle tree. And the root of the witness Merkle tree is simply put as one of the leaves in the, the transaction Merkle tree, in the Coinbase transaction specifically. And what that does is all of the witnesses are now summarized in the block header and therefore locked in with the mining so that they're immutable. But you kind of snuck them in there and you don't need to change the structure of the block to do that. That's really helpful. Yeah, this is really helpful. I think it, you can get lost in the terminology because there's so many different names of things and people are like, well, what is that? You know, <laughs> it's, it's really good to have a refresher every once in a while. So the new proposal that came out at the beginning of this week called Extended Blocks is based on a proposal made back in 2014 by Johnson Lau with a few changes and twists that actually make it more practical. So segregated witness says take the signatures out of the transactions and out of the block so that you don't count them as part of the block size. And you can create this additional space, which is the, the signature space. Extended block says, take some of the transactions in whole out of the block and put them in an extended block. It's almost, you could call it segregated transactions. 
and it specifically works kind of with a different version of segregated witness because you're using the same structure as segregated witness, but all of the segregated witness signatures and their transactions are now in the extended block. So you're moving the entire transaction out of the block, including its signatures, and you're putting them in an extended block, which gets validated separately from the main block. One way to also describe it is that this is a merged mined sidechain that's a sidechain to Bitcoin, but is mined in Bitcoin as well. And you can move transactions in and out of the extended block. You have a special transaction within the main block that's called the resolution transaction, and it allows you to move transactions in and out, or UTXO rather, more specifically, in and out of the extended block. So this is an even more elaborate and also rather complex way of extending the block size, but doing so in a way that resolves the transaction malleability issue, because it also includes SegWit, but is a soft fork. It's a block size increase, which is a soft fork. So this was this was something that came out of Purse.io. We, we know Purse.io is the company that does Amazon purchases with Bitcoin, but they've also done quite a bit of work in creating useful tools and building the ecosystem. Among that, they have a developer called Chris Jeffries, goes by JJ, who's developed Bitcoin. We've had him on the show. And Bitcoin is a fully compatible implementation of the core node software, the client software. It's a node wallet consensus engine and fully validating node that's written in JavaScript. And so at some point, JJ got together with Joseph Poon and one other guy, sorry, I forget the name right now, and they put together a proposal to implement Johnson Lau's extended blocks, but in a different way that could be done that would, in their mind, placate and satisfy all parts of the ecosystem. Like, look, you got bigger blocks, and you got SegWit in a slightly different way, but also SegWit, and it's all a soft fork, so there's no hard fork required. And of course, the result was utterly predictable. Nobody was happy with it. No, well, I mean, well, well, the miners were happy with it because they got some feedback from the miners as they were developing the proposal. And actually, JJ ended up writing a full implementation of it in JavaScript for Bitcoin that works, so like a like a testnet to prove that it worked. The miners were happy with it. Of course, as soon as the miners were happy with it. Uh, the core developers were unhappy with it, even though it's a soft fork. And again, in the time since Johnson Lau made this proposal, there have been a number of developments in how you do hard forks, how you do soft forks, what can be done with the block header, etc. There's a lot of which that has happened in the meantime. And, you know, this proposal is a very different way of doing things. It introduces some things that have been criticized by core. It's seen as overly complex and something that will actually take a lot longer to implement than what's already on the table, which is segregated witness. And, you know, part of the argument here is that, okay, you can write a prototype in a day or a week, but actually doing this at the scale of Bitcoin would require six months to a year of development and testing before anybody could actually do this. And in the meantime, we already have segregated witness, which gives us 99% of the benefits and is ready to go and has tested for a year and a half. Yeah, part of that is there is a bit of not invented here attitude among some of the core developers. They don't like any proposal that doesn't come out from core. 
Um, there's there there are some very valid technical concerns, and then there's the all of the bruised egos and hurt feelings that mean that any proposal that one side likes is seen as suspicious by the other side in the scaling debate. So all of that accumulated, and you know, people were called names, and <laughs> drama happened. Indeed, welcome to Bitcoin. It so often happens. Yeah. Well, the problem is it's not necessarily wrong to kind of think about ulterior motives, right? The problem is, like, how do you resolve it? You know what I mean? I'm not saying that either side is right or wrong. It's just that I can see why people don't trust each other in this situation, because there's been this war that's been going on for so long. So then it becomes, how do you resolve a war when there's like deep mistrust on both sides. Most sides aren't really looking through it through the lens of what's actually the right path forward and looking at it through the lens of how can I accomplish what I want? Because effectively by picking sides, it means that the other guys are on the other side at this point. Well, it's, it's also, I mean, you know, Bitcoin is an adversarial system and it's an adversarial system that, that is offending a lot of very big interests. And there are also, there's money involved, a lot of money involved, especially on the, on the side of miners who have what could arguably be a quarter of a billion dollar industry on the line. The extended blocks thing seems to be kind of doing even more of what segregated witness wants to do, right? As you said, it's segregating the transactions themselves. Uh, so that really brings kind of a question to the front of my mind, which is what actually needs to be in a normal, as we currently have it now, Bitcoin blockchain block moving forward? Is there anything that really needs to be there? Or will do you think that eventually we'll have everything stripped out? you know, just for efficiency's sake, especially if blocks aren't going to get bigger, and put into these separate structures so the kind of core block that is Bitcoin can remain very small and very, you know, true to what it's supposed to be. But we can still have, I mean, it seems like that's the direction that, that s several of these proposals have taken us in. So do you think that this is a, just a short-term optimization or a trend that we'll see continue? I mean, this is, this is basically a, a broader discussion about the architecture of the system and whether things are done in separate protocol layers, which is the Lightning Network concept or Tumblebit or T-Chan or one of those payment channel options, whether you have to re-architect the block itself or the transaction structure itself, the data structure, either to introduce efficiencies or to solve particular bugs that exist in in the system and so it's it's a difference between kind of vertical scaling versus horizontal scaling and what the options are and and these are complex discussions because this isn't traditional software it's software that has a network footprint consensus rules and a giant industrial infrastructure behind it and it's a system that has to actively fight to maintain decentralization because there are many forces that are pushing to centralize the system. Natural economies of scale, for example, in the mining industry, in the manufacture of ASICs, etc. And so it's a very delicate balance between software architecture, systems architecture, distributed systems, and economics, and really the economics of decentralization, all of which is playing out on a large scale on Bitcoin in an adversarial process where you can be right or you can be wrong, and the market will decide where you put your money, where your mouth is, and put it into the consensus rules and see who wins. And so the, there's no way to resolve this by committee or by negotiation between parties, because you can never have all of the parties. And in the end, the only resolution mechanism we have is market-based consensus rules. So 
I'm going to summarize that as we can do whatever we want. We just have to figure out what we're doing and then do it. The problem is part of this is science. Opinions are great, but there is an objective truth here. There is a correct way of doing things and an incorrect way of doing things. And there are bugs and there are correct implementations. So not all opinions are equal. And sometimes the compromise position, which is politically astute, it is technologically naive. So it creates these hybrid chimeras that have all of the problems of both sides and none of the advantages. And sometimes the technical solution which is technically correct, is politically naive and has no chance of actually succeeding in a real market-based system. And, and these two things are constantly playing back and forth. So it seems like, though, that the political, it's not that it doesn't have a place here, it's that it doesn't have the right perspective here to be able to correctly articulate its place, <laughs> right? There's uh, something that is achievable versus something that is correct is the differentiation you're making. Right. And too often the political spills into the technical discussions, which breaks the very basis of a technical meritocracy and peer review and the process, the scientific process that exists to make good quality decisions and produce quality code and good systems. And sometimes the technical, while correct, is presented in such a politically naive way that it damages its chances of success. And unfortunately, the two sets of skills seems to seem to be almost mutually exclusive. Well, that's an interesting way of putting it, because Bitcoin never was, to me, Bitcoin never really was a technical meritocracy. It was a democracy than a technical. I mean, yeah, I suppose there were sort of like leaders that emerged of people who could contribute technical solutions and participate in a meaningful discussion on a technical level. But there was always a lot of like the masses getting involved, you know, that don't have technical expertise just by using Bitcoin and participating in it. I think that there was a lot of broad consensus early on because there didn't need to be any of these contentious conversations. We weren't at a place where scaling was an issue. There, were, there weren't really any, it just didn't matter in much the same way. And so like you look at the time when it really started getting contentious. And I would say that that was when the kind of Gavin Andreessen, Mike Hearn type thing, kind of earlier days of that, that was the time where you saw the people who had led the technical meritocracy essentially jump out in front of an of a alternative path forward and it was rejected by the market. And so then they basically lost the vast majority of their standing. Mike Kurt eventually left. Uh, Gavin Andreessen is still around, but doesn't contribute and uh, has been, you know, kind of chiming in on and off in sort of a, a minor way. But he is nowhere near the presence that he was at that point. So maybe it was just easier early on to not have these fights, but they were always baked into the cake. Absolutely. And I think this is the main lesson for all of the altcoins, because one of the really funny attitudes that you see in the altcoin communities, even the, you know, the most interesting and well-established other open blockchains is, look at what a mess Bitcoin is. Everything here is Kumbaya. Well, everything was Kumbaya in Bitcoin in 2013. And, and, you know, the other analogy I use is Bitcoin's out in the South Seas on this rusty ship with everyone's on deck welding, cutting and patching and bailing as fast as they can, soaked to the bone in 80 foot waves. And meanwhile, you've got, you know, the 
USS Ethereum and the USS Dash sitting in the harbor. Everyone's on deck cha- chairs enjoying a suntan and a shrimp cocktail. And they're like, look at those guys. They're terrible sailors. Well, you know what? You might be dry, but you're still in the harbor. You're not really sailing. <laughs> <laughs> the scaling problems come later. They come when you have transaction volume and scale and and a lot of money at stake. And And, and that's not to say the great solutions over in the other open public blockchains. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. All I'm saying is they haven't really been tested yet. And a lot of the Kumbaya dissipates instantly the moment you have something contentious. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And you'll see all of the same problems. The best thing would be to, you know, learn from Bitcoin's mistakes and try to avoid them or fix them earlier or govern differently or whatever. And and some of the altcoins are trying to do that. So I think they're learning great lessons. They get that advantage of watching what happens at a different scale and, and being able to follow that path with a bit less drama. But again, it's coming. It's coming for everyone. If you get to any scale where you're doing something interesting, you're going to get these problems. Basically, Bitcoin is blazing the trail. It's blazing the trail and you might look at the Bitcoin community and go, oh my God, it's such a dysfunctional, toxic community full of competing interests and sharks and people trying to exploit. Yeah, that wa- that's what happens at 15 billion when you've been around for eight years and in the media and have survived several of these scathing problems and crashes and hacks. That's what comes out of it. It's a gnarly, scar-covered pirate on deck welding as fast as he can. (laughs) It's no longer a cruise ship, kumbaya, and shrimp cocktails. The Let's Talk Bitcoin show is now accepting sponsor applications. And this time, you don't need to be an advertiser. If you're a listener with a project or passion looking to connect with the other LTB listeners, contact Adam at letstalkbitcoin.com with the subject listener special for the deal. Back to the show. This is all a great discussion to have. I think it was like a great review. And so where does that leave us with the announcement by Greg Maxwell about the ASIC boost? First of all, what is ASIC boost and what was this announcement? Let's just talk about that first. So about a year and a half or years ago, uh, Timo Hanken and Sergio Lerner discovered, invented, I don't know how exactly to put it, first of all, discovered a quirk in SHA-256, which is the algorithm used for mining, and then invented a way to use that quirk to significantly reduce the amount of energy required to mine. By significantly, I mean anywhere in the order of 20 to 30%. Basically a shortcut in the proof of work function that allows you to skip a lot of the calculation and produce a proof with less work. Equal proof, less work. And this is called ASIC boost. It takes advantage of the fact that SHA-256 as an algorithm processes things in 64-byte blocks. And in the particular case of the Bitcoin block header, which is the thing that's being hashed repeatedly, Bitcoin block header is 80 bytes long, which means you can look at it as 80 bytes, or you can look at it as 64 plus 16. And the two parts of 64 plus 16 are processed separately from SHA-256. So what they discovered is that under certain circumstances, you can create a couple of alternatives of one part of the header by 
finding some low-level collisions in the pre-image for SHA-256, in the first stage of SHA-256. And by doing that, you can then massively reduce the computation you need to find a suitable nonce and reduce it by about 20 to 30%. So you can produce the proof of work much faster if you can create essentially four versions of the block header are equivalent in function, but different in fingerprint, and that are collisions. Now, the way to do that is, I, I coined the term block header malleability. Basically make changes to the block header that change its hash without changing its function, without impacting its function. And there are a couple of places where you can do that in the block header. That was ASIC Boost. It was patented, I believe, in the US and Europe by Sergio and Timo. And since, it appears now also patented in China by Bitmain. Which is a large mining, a company that has a large stake in mining. Which is not just a company that has a large stake in mining, but effectively the only reseller of ASICs right now who, through their almost exclusive control of the ASIC manufacturer. KNC Miner has gone bankrupt. Bitfury produces only on a very different scale, on a container scale. They don't do essentially retail mining equipment. So Bitmain, through their Ant Miner, is now controlling the ASIC manufacturer for most of the other mining farms. And that gives them significant power. And they've also been the primary driver behind Bitcoin Unlimited, and the lobbying and resistance effort towards SegWit, the negative lobbying towards SegWit. So they're pro hard fork. Have they been behind it or have they been prominent? I mean, like, I can only think of a couple of prominent people on that side, but like, are they actually like sponsoring events? Like, is there, is there actual organization going on there or are they just strongly and publicly in favor of it? And they're one of the bigger people who are, so they're, you know leading it. Well, it's hard to separate the truth from the rumors, but they, they do have a war chest and they've actually claimed repeatedly that they're going to use their war chest of $100 million to make this happen. Funding both PR campaigns and lobbying, which everybody's doing, of course, but also funding development activity in Bitcoin Unlimited, various bounties and things like that in order to promote their cause. So uh, isn't a 20 to 30% increase in efficiency actually low compared to what we saw a year or two ago, you know, when new generations of mining hardware came out? It's actually enormous because you've got to realize that this is vis-a-vis -vis competitors who are using the exact same chip. And when the margins in this business are 1% to 2%, a 20% increase corresponds to about $100 million a year of additional revenue and is enough to concentrate the market completely in the hands of one miner. But this is not the real bombshell. The real bombshell is that most people thought that the way you could use ASIC boost was to concentrate on, let's say, the left side of the block header. And, you know, if you, if you remember when we talked about malleability before, if you want to change something without it having an effect, you have to change some part of the header that doesn't matter. Right, You can't change the part of the header that points to the previous block hash, because that's the previous block hash. If you change anything in there, it's no longer tied to its parent. You can't change the part that's the timestamp by too much. You can fiddle with a few bits at the least significant bits of the timestamp, move it a few seconds here and there. They use that for nonce, but you can't fiddle much with that. 
other than that, there's really only two places in the entire block header you can play. One is the version field. Right at the beginning, block version. And as long as it's greater than a certain number, it doesn't really matter what number it is. That's used for voting in BIP9, so you can signal, oh, I want to do check sequence verify, or I'm pro-segwit, or whatever. But it's not really that tightly fixed, so you can put various bits in the version field. The other side of the block header is the Merkle root, the, the root of the tree of all of the transaction hashes. And you can manipulate that either by introducing transactions that don't really exist on the network that you created just for the purpose of messing with the tree, by moving transactions or changing their order, uh, resequencing them, and various other tricks, including it's a lot easier to play with that side if the blocks are more or less empty or have very few transactions. Now, everybody thought that ASIC boost would be applied on the left side. So that's overt, meaning that you can look at blocks, and if the version field contains weird numbers in it, not one of the most expected versions you see out there, but suddenly it's got all of these weird bit combinations, you're like, okay, someone's playing with ASIC boost. You can detect that. Right. Fairly easy to block it, too. You can do a soft fork that restricts the block versions that are allowed, and that will thwart the manipulation of the bit version field. So if anybody was playing with this, it was assumed that we'd see it since it was patented, nobody had licensed it, nobody was really using it. We, you know, People assumed ASIC boost wasn't really happening. Greg Maxwell was working on this among other problems and he realized that another, well, and also in the original paper, they talk about another way of doing it, which is a lot harder to do, which is on the right side of the block header using the Merkle tree. And what the realization that Rick Maxwell had was, if this is being used, SegWit breaks it. As in, if this is being used, it requires certain very tight conditions. It would be indicated mostly by mining a lot of empty blocks or blocks with just a few transactions, or reordering transactions within the Merkle tree in weird orders, or introducing transactions that haven't been seen in the mempool. All of that, however, requires very careful manipulation of the Merkle tree in two parts. And the left side is the Coinbase, and on the right side, you will have other transactions. It's a lot easier to do if the Coinbase doesn't change. It's a lot harder to do if the transaction you put on the right side will affect the left side because of Coinbase. Now, if you remember from our previous discussion, segregated witness takes the Merkle tree of witnesses and sticks it in the Coinbase. So that means you have something that is affected by all of the transactions in the block that affects the hash on both the right and the left side of the Merkle tree, which makes it now much, much harder to run ASIC boost. It takes, takes away at least half the optimization. And this is the bombshell. It's like, what if this entire scaling debate is premised on a covert attempt to run ASIC boost at an advantage of almost $100 million a year while selling the same equipment to other miners without that fix? So they're running at a 30% disadvantage with the same gear. And SegWit is not being opposed because of you know, good faith arguments, but the real opposition to SegWit is that it throws a wrench in this covert $100 million mining optimization that must be resisted so as to maintain this advantage. And of course, the, the realization goes further than that. It's not just SegWit. It's any optimization 
to the block header and most of the things that are coming down the pipeline, even flexible transactions, which is the counter proposal to SegWit. But many, many, many of the optimizations that are being suggested, that are being tested, that are being proposed, will essentially also nullify this optimization. And that means that if miners are in fact doing this, then they have a hundred million dollar reason to resist any changes to the block header, which causes immediate stagnation to the Bitcoin protocol. And that's a problem. Yeah, that definitely does does seem like the incentives are aligned there. It creates an, an, uh, an enormous perversion of the incentives. So Greg says that he went out, got a miner, and reverse engineered it and is convinced that, in fact, they are running ASIC Boost, not on their clients' machines, the ones they sell to customers, but only on their own. And that, in fact, this is the reason. Now, no evidence for this. This, at the moment, is one person saying that they found evidence through reverse engineering. Part of the reason they're saying this is that the Antminer S9 has a FPGA and dual core ARM processor on the chip that seems a bit overkill for the kind of processing you need to do, unless you're trying to find a collision for the block header, in which case that's exactly the kind of equipment you'd need. Greg says he reverse engineered the code running on that and sees indications of ASIC boost. If that is the case, the whole year and a half of block size debate just had a completely new twist on it. Because if that motivation exists, $100 million motivation to stagnate all development in the protocol in order to maintain that competitive advantage, that's a very big deal. Yeah, it certainly looks dirty. But of course, extraordinary claims require, maybe it's not that extraordinary of a claim, but what I'm asking is, did Greg Maxwell do, like show his work on the reverse engineering? Like, did he? What evidence was there that he was showing to back up the claim. Oh, none so far. This is coming soon, presumably. And it's actually very difficult to validate. And that's, of course, the main argument against this idea, which Emin Gunsir is writing about in Hacking Distributed, his blog, that, as you said, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And Gun says he doesn't see any of that evidence in the blocks. You know, there would be certain signs in the blocks. It's not impossible to do it without leaving a trace, but he doesn't see any. So he's kind of questioning this extraordinary claim. The bigger picture, of course, is that even if it's not happening now, the fact is that it could be happening, and it could happen in the future. And do you want what is basically a bug in the proof-of-work algorithm that allows you to do, deliver proof without doing the work, which, you know, some people say that's not really a vulnerability, it's not really an attack, it's just an optimization. I would think that if the, if the primary function of Bitcoin's proof-of-work algorithm is to burn energy on a level playing field in order to prove your commitment to security, and... The thing is called proof of work, meaning that you have to prove the actual work you did. If you're not doing as much work, and if you're not burning as much energy but producing the same proof, I would call that at least a bug, if not an attack. It's like doping, right? <laughs> like the runners, you know, who inject their own blood. It's like a cheat. 
it, it it is well yes it it is in a way it is a a small feat and it would not be a problem at all but for two functions one if everybody had access to it and of course everybody can't have access to it because this is not a free market this is backed by patents in the US Europe and China and therefore there is a government imposed monopoly on access to this technology which makes it not a free market at all that's one problem. The second problem is the bigger problem. Even if everybody had access to it, then everybody would be incented to delay protocol development so as not to mess up their relative advantage. Okay, you could say, okay, now we'll turn it off. Everybody will lose 30% optimization, and that will simply be reflected in the next difficulty adjustment. Nobody loses their relative position in the ranking against their competitors because everybody's on a level playing field. You know, if the whole playing field drops 30% lower, but it's level, everybody drops with it, there's no real difference, right? You know, that's that's the problem. So in his proposal, Greg is also suggesting a user-activated soft fork that effectively disarms ASIC boost, or at least disarms only the covert version of ASIC boost, so as to remove it from the consideration as to whether protocol changes can happen, such as segregated witness. Okay, so something that disarms only the covert version of ASIC boost, there's a lot of steps that have to get to that point, right? We have to have code, essentially, for the covert version of ASIC boost, and then convince people to activate this disarming of it. I don't understand how that would happen. Like, it seems like there's some missing links. Yeah. So, I mean, this just happened. So, at, at the moment, it was just a, here's what I think I found. Here's the proposed move forward. So, the proposed move forward, which is being presented as a BIP, and is being presented with the intent of including it as soon as version 0.14.2 of core. Which is the next version? Which is the, yeah, 14 has not yet come out, right? So, 14 is currently in release candidate Um and schedule for imminent release, and therefore nothing else can be added at this point. It's too late. Production is frozen. It's just bug fixes. In the immediate next, perhaps minor incremental version, basically introduce code. What it does is it requires the miners to make a commitment in the Coinbase against the witness transaction. Basically, it's a poison pill for ASIC boost. It doesn't affect anything else. It doesn't Strictly speaking, it doesn't even require the signaling implementation or activation of SegWit. Miners could do this even if they disagree with SegWit and they don't want SegWit activated. They could still put it in there and process it, as far as I understand. And But it's a poison pill for ASIC boost. Right. So the only reason not to do it would be because you're benefiting from ASIC boost, essentially. Yes. And it's a fairly narrow change. Or if you don't trust this whole story, I guess you wouldn't want to... Yes. And a lot of people are looking at this as kind of a backdoor way of pushing miners into segregated witness. So again, everybody's motives are questioned always in this particular space. But it was quite a bombshell because it puts the whole conversation in an entirely different light. The possibility that this is the case, and even more so the possibility that optimizations within the proof-of-work algorithm can create perverse incentives that motivate against the development of changes in the protocol to preserve advantage. That's that's a very big game theoretical problem in, in my yeah. 
So uh, we mentioned that Gun had uh, recently written on this. I'd actually like just to provide a little bit of his article, a couple of the later points that I think are worth uh, airing here and then responding to if you have anything you want to respond. So uh, we'll link this article in the uh, show notes. So the first point is there are countless patents involved in the manufacture of ASICs spanning layout, doping, lithography, all the way down to packaging. Layout alone can confer advantages that far exceed the paltry 30% possible with ASIC boost. The Bitcoin community believes it understands hashing algorithms, but there's no reason to ignore patents related to ASIC manufacturing in general. Uh, if a case is to be made against patents, that it needs to be made properly across all patents related to ASIC manufacture. Yeah, this is really a non sequitur. Uh, the, the issue is not disarming the optimization or reducing the optimization because it confers a competitive advantage or that competitive advantage is related to patents. That's a side issue, and some people feel that that's an unfair advantage. And from a practical perspective, it's it's an unfair advantage that can rapidly centralize control over Bitcoin mining. So the issue isn't the patent, it's more that they have the patent while at the same time having an effective monopoly on consumer mining and, hardware production. And that's not the issue. Uh, even that's not the issue. That's part of the issue, but the real issue is not that. The real issue is that this optimization creates a perverse incentive to stop any development or changes in the block header, because the block header has to be just so in order to use this optimization, and that will significantly disrupt development of Bitcoin because it positions the the most profitable industry in Bitcoin, which is mining, with an enormous amount of capital in direct opposition to development of the protocol. We can't have good things because of this. So I hear that argument, and I understand why it's being made, but what I don't understand if necessarily if it isn't the most convenient argument I've ever heard in favor of doing what the core kind of bias side wants to do, because it invalidates the argument of the other side. So in a situation lacking evidence, my bias would go more towards believing that the people not providing evidence that something is actually happening. Because again, there's like three levels of inference here that you have to assume in order to get to the point where the entire thing has been about this all along. And you also have to assume a very large degree of coordination, if not in uh, actuality, then in money that's flowing to different parts of the ecosystem in order to encourage these things. And so far, I have seen zero evidence to support that either. That's fair. But at the same time, an advantage like this that generates at least tens of millions of dollars a year is enough to skew anybody's incentive structure and change the discussion completely. But that exact same argument can be made against Blockstream on the other side. So, I mean, like, I don't understand how, how one side can deploy that argument without the other side having it exactly, you know, orthogonally. Both, both sides are deploying that argument. So the, but the difference is this, and I, I think this is the important linchpin for the entire thing. If this change can be implemented without pushing for SegWit, without activating SegWit, I think that's the mistake. Gunn says SegWit is being offered as a solution to a sick boost, right? Not really. Essentially, the solution to ASIC boost is to put a witness-like commitment that doesn't have to activate SegWit, but which messes up the opportunity to manipulate the tree separately on the left and right side. This is a, something that, if implemented, will only thwart that particular optimization when used covertly in the Merkle route and will remove any potential incentive to delay development of the protocol 
Without stopping ASIC boost as a whole, you can still do it. You could just use the block version side of the block to do it, but in a way that makes it obvious to everyone that you're doing it. And without affecting any of the miners who are not using ASIC boost. So if nobody's using it in this one giant canard, then it doesn't matter because the solution doesn't do anything if ASIC boost isn't in use. And it doesn't activate SegWit either. Okay, so what you're saying there is that both sides can demonstrate this isn't an issue by fixing the covert version, uh, which then ensures that this perverse incentive that now people are concerned might be existing right now and might be influencing this debate. It seems to me that the problem with that primarily from the other side is just that they've actually spent money on the patent, right? So invalidating one of the, I mean, like making the patent less valuable within the protocol as a way to prove that they're not doing anything malicious if they're legitimately not doing anything malicious. Why would they do that? Right. I think that we get back to the both sides here have such strong incentives to get their way because you're talking about a hundred million dollars a year. But the reality is, is that if the small block side of, of the argument uh, wins, then it represents hundreds of millions of dollars, at least for them, too, because it's the way that they've been developing their their vision of the ecosystem. It's for the, Blockstream, it's, you mean? Well, I just mean for anybody on the small block side versus the large block side, the incentives are the same. You've been planning for the way that you wanted to move forward. No, I'm sorry. I don't actually see it that way. There's a massive difference. There is no direct way to profit from a particular architecture design and software, such as, for example, Lightning Network or sidechains. I'm not making an argument about direct. I'm making an argument about directionality, right? A directionality determines the products that Blockstream is creating are done in such a way because they think that the Bitcoin blockchain is going to develop and be used in such a way moving forward. If blocks get to be very large, beyond what they want, beyond the pace that they want, then the solutions that they have for alleviating on-chain transaction traffic, regardless of what you're talking about, and again, I'm not just talking about the Blockstream company, I'm talking about people who think that that you know, the small blocks are the way to go. I'm talking about that side generally. Oh, yeah, absolutely. People have placed bets on the future, and they've also placed bets with their business plan and their business model that expose them to risk if that business plan changes on both sides. And part of that is you take out a patent and you use an optimization. There's a good chance that the protocol changes and you no longer get to use that optimization or patent and vice versa. You plan for small blocks and second layer technologies. And if small blocks don't happen, if big blocks happen instead, you don't have as much a pressing need. As compelling a, as compelling a use case. It's still useful. It still is a business model and there's all that stuff. But the, the impetus to do it is different yes. than the one that and, you assumed while you were creating it. And this competitive tension is the basis of Bitcoin security. This competitive tension, which contraposes all of these incentive structures for the five different elements of, cons of the consensus constituency, right? So you've got developers, miners, exchanges, uh, merchant processing, and wallets or users. Those are the five constituencies of Bitcoin. And they all have their own perspective and incentive structure and, and profit motives. And the consensus algorithm pits everyone against everybody else in a delicate balance where there's always tension. So yes, absolutely. There is a lot at stake here. And this debate is not just about the technology. It's about the broader markets and, and 
what is at stake. But you know, certainly things are interesting. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, that's no lie. You know, that's the, the the thing about it that's so fascinating is it, it really is a black swan incubator. Just out of nowhere, this potential that the entire debate has been twisted by this weird incentive structure of an optimization that just opens the door to a whole new layer of understanding the scaling debate. And so we'll see how it plays out, but it certainly keeps things interesting in Bitcoin. I would say at this point, the chances of a user-activated soft fork are much, much higher than they were last week. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show was provided by Andreas, Stephanie, and Adam. Music was provided by Jared Rubens. This episode was edited by Matthew Zipkin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>